Before we start that and I do an introduction sermon, I want to highlight one thing. There's a card on your seat that says, Consider Cadres. Uh, That's actually a noun, Consider Cadres. Uh, We have two main rhythms of how we gather outside of Sundays. Um, Our biggest rhythm is cohorts, and those happen in the fall and in the spring, so we're on a break from them right now, and in between, we do Cadres. Now, this is so perfect because we're getting into the Gospel of John. I'm about to explain who John was. John was one of the 12 disciples. Now, Jesus had way more than 12 disciples. He had hordes of people at times, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of disciples following. And we'll see in John, some went away because his teachings began to be too difficult, but some stayed. And so amongst that larger group, like you might think of Sunday, then there was like a 12, which was a more intimate group. Um, that he had, and John was a part of that 12. But John was also a part of a group of three that met with Jesus more intimately. So John was sort of a part of, you could say, a Sunday and a cohort and a cadre with Jesus, which is pretty cool to be a part of a cadre with Jesus. Now, Jesus is a part of all of our cadres, which is great, and we're going to pair you with three other uh, same gendered people, so if you're three guys, or four guys, or four girls. And this is different than cohorts, which are uh, uh, co-ed, because they're going to accomplish something slightly different. Um, uh, there's going to be some more uh, intimacy, perhaps, and you can talk about the sermons, about the upcoming text, uh, similar to how we do in cohorts, but now you're going to get to talk and go places that you might not be able to go because it's a group of guys talking. And, and you're going to get more airtime because instead of 12 to 15, there's just four of you. And, and you can meet anywhere. And so cadres, we actually encourage you not to meet every time in somebody's home. We'd love for you to go meet in a coffee shop or at a brewery or at a restaurant to show that the consideration of Jesus happens anywhere at any time in any place. And so uh, we've had that experience in my cadre last Uh, go around in the summer. Uh, I met a guy who just overheard us at a coffee shop talking about Jesus, and he said, hey, are you guys Christians? And I ended up meeting up with him afterwards. And so there's just something unique and different about cadres from cohorts, and we want everyone to experience that. So you can read about cadres on the back. We've got a little definition of what is a cadre. This is going to be a seven-week session that's going to start at the very end of this month. So for the next couple weeks, you'll have a chance to sign up. I would encourage you, don't wait. Uh, just go for it. Just jump all in. And, and we had about 100 people last uh, time we did this uh, at the end of the summer. And we, I, I hope to have more than that, 150 maybe, people sign up for Cadre. So that probably includes you. Um, so you can put your name and your email and your phone number, what neighborhood you live in how long you've been attending Sidaris, and then we added one new box this time around. If mornings are best for you, because you won't sign up like you do for cohorts based on the night of the week, because once you have your four people, you'll, we'll give you everybody's cell phone, and you guys will just be like real friends, and you'll like figure out when to meet. And so you can meet in the mornings, you can meet in the evenings, you can meet on the weekdays, you can meet at a different time each week, you guys figure it out. Uh, we trust that you can do that. But if, if for some reason mornings are the only time you can meet, just make a note of that here, that you prefer mornings. Uh, and then we'll try to get you with three other people who also said they prefer mornings. And that, that way that'll make it a little bit easier so that you can maximize. Now, not everybody will be able to come to every meeting, and that's okay. Uh, but hopefully, for these seven weeks, you'll get to know somebody really well. Um, so this is great if you're brand new to the church. This is great if you've been here for a while. We'll try to plug you in with people that you're not already in community with. So people outside of your cohort. Now, we expect and hope that your cohort continues to encourage and support one another. Perhaps your cohorts get together for a meal. Perhaps you do some missional activity even in this season as we're waiting for cohorts to start back up uh, in the spring. So, um, super exciting. So, fill this out. Drop it in some basket. Give it to somebody that looks important. Uh, There's baskets in the... There's so many places you could drop it. Do not leave it on your seat because we might not see... That it's been completed. So put it somewhere. You can put it on a table up here. You can hand it to me. Like I said, there's baskets in the back. So this is Cadres. Definitely, definitely sign up. This is awesome. Okay. Are you excited? Yep. Okay. This is an exciting morning, as you can tell. Ugh. Let's go. 
If you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, which is one of four Gospels. And you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat back in front of you. It looks like this. And if you've got that Bible, we are actually going to be, uh, you can turn with me to page 941. 941. And we are uh, not going to look specifically just at one text. Uh, that's typically the way we uh, do sermon series here as we walk through the book of the Bible because it forces us to talk about things we might not want to talk about. And so that's what the Word of God does. It examines us so that we might examine Christ. And so we get to do that. We'll walk through verse by verse uh, the whole Gospel of John. Uh, but today's a bit of an overview. So today, if you're not yet a Christian or you're exploring Christianity or you're reconsidering after a time away, um, this sermon will be the most professorial of probably all of our sermons. I'm going to give you some background data that will help you interpret and understand what John is saying through his whole gospel. So this is going to feel a little bit like college, um, so don't fall asleep. This is not Cain Hall. This is not Economics 101. There's not 600 other people, so I'll know if you're sleeping. I slept during that class in college at UW, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so here we go. You ready? Who is John? Who is John? Well, I already said he was one of the 12. I already said he was one of, uh, in Jesus' cadre. Um, So he was intimately aware of who Jesus was. Uh, In fact, in the gospel, he doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. So he, he knows of the love of Jesus in a way um, that many of us are aspiring to. He was with Jesus in so many of these instances. And so I wanted to read this introduction that I read in a commentary this week by a guy named Charles Swindoll. And I just thought it sort of, it, it, it helps you get to know John. So I'm just going to read this to you. So listen carefully. John had lived long enough to see it all, from the beginning all the way through to the end. As a brash, blustering young man, the idea of tramping around the wilderness of Judea after John the baptizer appealed to him a great deal, so much so that the young fisherman left a thriving fishing enterprise in the hands of his brother James and abandoned his privileged status for the baptizer's diet of locust and wild honey. And for the chance to help prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, he helped the forerunner of the Messiah baptize thousands of repentant Jews and supported the strange Elijah-like figure as he called down judgment upon the corrupt leaders of the Jewish people. Then finally, the day came when John saw the long-awaited anointed one. He looked nothing like what John had imagined. But the declaration of his wilderness mentor, John the Baptizer, was unequivocal. This was the one. He and another of the Baptizer's disciples decided to get a closer look, to follow Jesus home, to hear what he had to say about himself and Israel. Before the dawn of the next day, John knew they had found the Messiah. The few years John spent with Jesus flew by in the beat of a lash. Yet, remaining vividly clear in his mind more than 70 years later. During that time with Jesus, he saw the man he thought would be a conquering super David, the savior of Israel. He saw him stripped, beaten mercilessly, and hung on a cross like a petty thug. He saw the sky darken as the light of the world faded into death. Then he saw the hope resurrected to assume a more glorious form than he could ever have imagined. And he stood in awe as the presence of God filled the squabbling, self-promoting disciples and transformed them into the body of Christ, the bones, the muscles, the hands, and the feet of Jesus. Then, as the blood of his martyred brothers and sisters yielded new believers, John nurtured them. As Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Luke, Timothy, Titus, and a host of other missionaries zealously expanded the church westward, John anchored its foundation. As critics bashed, John defended. As imposters subverted, John exposed them. As false prophets misled, John refuted their heretical teaching. 
He condensed his teaching into three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which originally circulated within the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, around A.D. 65. Having outlived all of his martyred peers, John was exiled by the emperor Domitian to a nearly barren island of Patmos. There he saw a future, the future of the world, all the way to its destruction and recreation, and then preserved everything he heard and witnessed in the Revelation, which he then sent as a letter to the churches in Asia Minor that were under his care. After Domitian's death in A.D. 96, John rested in the care of the church in Ephesus, which in turn enjoyed his gentle, grandfather-like shepherding. The Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'll explain why they call it the Synoptics, were written as early as A.D. 50. They had been staples of the church's teaching for decades. They had told the story of Jesus from different perspectives, yet they chose to include many of the same events, largely taken from Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Decades later, when the elderly John was in Ephesus, the church was no longer a budding movement, but an established community and a system of thought. The challenges were different, different than they were when Christianity was in its infancy. The danger came less from the form of physical attacks or religious opposition and more through philosophical corruption or theological compromise. Furthermore, the biography of Jesus lacked a much-needed cosmic dimension. So, in the final years of John's life, after he had witnessed the most significant period of history the world has ever known, and with the nearness of his death giving memories and urgency to be shared, John wrote of his master. And that's what we get to read throughout the next year. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, of course, Jesus loved all his disciples. He loves us. But John knew of this love in a way, and he wanted to make sure people knew what exactly he knew. Here's the questions I hope to answer this morning in this introduction. Why is John often the first book that many people recommend to new Christians or not yet Christians to read through? Why is John's gospel so different than the other three? How do the four gospels play or dance together to give us a more accurate portrait of Jesus? And then why does it seem that John decided to write his gospel at such an old age? Why not write it when he was much younger? So I hope at the end of this morning you could answer those if you asked yourself that question or somebody else asked. And uh, you ready to go? Here we go. How could we answer these? Well, let's first ask, when did John write his gospel and why does that matter? Okay, so he's probably writing his gospel somewhere in the 90s, based on what we know. Somewhere in the 90s AD. So this is like somewhere between 25 and 40 years after the other gospels, the other biographies. When I say gospels, I'm talking about the biographies of Jesus' life, death, ministry, teachings, and of course, of his resurrection. Um... Those are the Gospels. And what we'll see in a second is the Gospel is the one unified message about how God saves the world through Jesus. So not the same thing. The Gospels and the Gospel are not the same. The Gospels are the information we need to understand the Gospel, but the Gospels are these four biographies of Jesus. So he's writing 25 to 40 years later. You'll see why that's important. 40 years of seeing how this faith, inspired by Jesus' life, the telling of his life, the Gospels that already had been written, seeing how that message has been or can be distorted or misunderstood. And so John has this unique perspective because he's seen it for decades work itself out in communities. And that's why we're calling this sermon series, What Exactly Do You Think I believe. More than just a title for this uh, sermon series, um, I hope that gives you a sense into what I think John 
is motivated by. John's using his gospel to very, very clearly articulate the fullness of what he believes. So perhaps some have depicted John's teaching incorrectly or inadequately or not thoroughly enough. And so John wants to set the record straight before he dies. And he's doing this in great love. So we'll talk more about that subtitle of the series in just a second. What exactly do you think I believe? Imagine John asking that question to a common Christian, hearing their response, and then going on to tell them all that he tells us in his gospel. Okay, so he's writing it in the late 90s, or early to late 90s. Um, He was the last living disciple or apostle. Pretty much all the others had been martyred, which is to say killed for their faith in Jesus and their unwillingness to recant that Jesus was the Son of God and had been raised from the dead. So John's sitting there, the last, the old man, not yet to succumb to the same fate of his brothers and sisters in Christ. So that plays into how John writes and why he writes what he writes. Moreover, the temple, which was the center of the Jewish religious system, the the physical temple in Jerusalem, where everyone would gather for the, the important festivals, where people for thousands of years believed that the presence of God dwelt among his people. The temple had been destroyed by the Romans. The Romans had become fed up, and they squashed a revolt of the Jewish people, and they burned and destroyed the temple of God. Why is that important? Jews were scattered out all over the Mediterranean world when this happened. Jews were having to rethink what does it mean to encounter God if we have no temple. And this will play into John's understanding of the way things are now. You'll hear him use what seems to be oppositional language almost against the temple. He'll portray now this fluid, sacred space. No longer is the sacred space this physical building, but the sacred space is now the community of God's people. It's fluid. It moves with you. You'll hear John talk about that. And so knowing that the temple had been destroyed is important of why he's highlighting this, both for Jews and Gentiles. It'll explain why much of John's narrative is set around the festivals and important holy days more than any other gospel All of John's stories take place around things like the Passover and other festivals. Why does John do this? Understanding how he's trying to show that Jesus fulfills, we'll talk more about this as we go, fulfills all of the Jewish holy days because he is now the Holy One. Might not know that. It's important to understanding why John highlights what he highlights. Now, Quick little mini application here. When, and this is part of why John is often called the evangelist. His gospel has this preacher-like evangelistic thrust to it. I think one of the things we can learn about John being the only gospel writer to write after the temple has been destroyed is this. In your own life, you've experienced this. So dig in. In your friends' lives, they will need to experience this. I believe John realized that now that the temple has actually been destroyed, people who never were before will now be open to considering Jesus. So in your life, you probably became open to considering Jesus when some temple was destroyed, right or wrong. When something that was holding you up, giving you hope, giving you purpose and meaning crumbled to the ground, and now you realize, I need some other source. Maybe it's time to consider Jesus. You will have friends that you will beat your head against the wall over and over and over again, wondering why they won't consider Jesus Christ the most important person that ever walked the earth. Just historically speaking, most famous person, they won't even consider, they wouldn't even read something like John, 
Why? Because their temple is still standing. For many, many people, they will not be open to considering until that temple comes crumbling down. That temple could be money. That temple could be some other religious system. That temple could be a relationship. That temple could be a marriage. That temple could be their kids. And only when that temple comes crushing down are they going to be open. So I tell you that to be don't be discouraged if you feel like you're beating your head against the wall. John gets it. He's been telling people and had been for a long time that Jesus is the new temple. But until that temple actually came crashing down, they weren't ready to hear about the new temple, which is Jesus. That could be true of you, and that could be true of those you love. But be very attuned to that. Don't give up on people. One day they'll realize that their temple can't save them. And maybe then they'll consider Jesus. Maybe then they'll say yes to Alpha. I've had friends that I've invited eight times now to Alpha, and they've said no every time. Don't give up on them. Invite them again. Particularly paying attention to when you see other temples in their life come crumbling down. Okay. So timing matters. And John waits thankfully waits until the end of his life. And God preserved him, I think, for a purpose, to write his gospel with this new kind of perspective with all these decades past, with the temple now destroyed, and with all this wisdom to share from his unique perspective. Oh my gosh! I wrote it in red, and I read right right by it. Let me give you an illustration of this temple thing. Anybody here ever served as a lifeguard? Okay, you can tell me if this is true or not true. I've heard it said that when you are being trained to be a lifeguard, they will tell you if you go try to save someone who's drowning while they still got enough energy to fight you, they'll kick and grab and push you under. So they'll actually train you to wait until they tucker themselves out, almost to the point of sinking, before you grab them and take them in. This often happens with the sharing of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it takes the friend or the family member not having enough energy to fight you before they'll start listening. Man, I've been kicked a lot of times. I've been drugged down (laughs) to the depths a lot of times because they just weren't ready. They still had too much fight left in them. And sometimes you need to say, you know what, I'll be here. We have a principle at Sedaris, aggressive availability. I'm available if you are ready to consider. I'm right here. I'm close. I've swum up. I'm swimming next to you, but you're going to have to stop punching and kicking, and when you do, I'm right there to help. Okay. Okay, so that's when. Now, why do I think John wrote the gospel? Why did God inspire him to write it in the way that he wrote it? We're going to look at a number of factors here. First, to understand the why question and the content question, we also need to understand how the four Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus, how they interact, how they play together or dance together. And they play and dance for our good. And so I'm going to encourage you to actually see the differences in the Gospel. Don't be scared of differences. No big deal. There's four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They're called synoptics because they are very parallel. They share different stories, but they have more in common than they have different. So you'll read them, and you'll be like, man, I feel like I'm reading the same account three times. Synoptics. Now, there's enough difference in there. But there's mainly the same. And then there's John, who seems totally different. He leaves a lot of stuff out, a lot of really cool story. Why would he leave that story out? That's a cool story. He's doing something very specific. Now, does this mean that there's four Jesuses? Is that what this means? No. Let me give you another illustration. Me, Ryan, and Ty at our staff meeting were were talking about the Christmas party and how great the Christmas party was and how much fun it was. And 
we were sharing our story. And at, at one point I realized, were we at the same party? <laughs> they were talking about somebody that was at the party. I was like, wait, that person was at the party? I didn't see that person. And then Ryan's like, not only did I see that person, I saw this person give a very intimate hug, almost like they were saying goodbye. And I'm like, what? I didn't see that. So if you went to Ryan and asked him his account of the Christmas party, and you came to Ty and asked her account of the Christmas party, she showed up late, and then you, <laughs> gotcha, but you had a good reason. You're at Reverend Kathy's house, so that was good. Okay, and then if you asked me, we would all highlight different parts of the party, and somebody could say, man, you guys were at four, Sedaris had four Christmas, or three, of the, three different Christmas parties. No, there was one party. But we experienced it slightly different, and when we talk about it, we're going to pick different things to highlight because different things were meaningful, and we want you to see different things. I will highlight when we sang the 12 days of Christmas. Ryan wants to forget that part of the story (laughs) because he was the only one singing his seventh day. Poor guy. And Ryan doesn't sing that loud. It's tough. But I loved it. I had to fight for that Christmas singing. And I won, so I'll highlight that. He won't. Ty missed some of it. She didn't, see, she didn't see the start of it, right? So one party, three different stories, but it's all the same. So that's the way it is with the gospel. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, each gospel writer is going to share their own personality, their own experience of it, and, and the things that they feel God's put on their heart to highlight, to draw out as they tell the story. But there's one gospel, One gospel with four vantage points. And when we read all four vantage points, we get a really good understanding of Jesus as a whole. So we've got a slide that I'd like to put up here uh, for you. Maybe. Okay, we don't have a slide. Okay, that's okay. I'm going to read it, so listen very closely. This is a good way of understanding so for a very high level, oh, there it is, a very high level way of understanding the difference between the accounts. So one gospel from four different vantage points. So Matthew says, this is the Messiah, the perfect king, so worship him. Mark's going to say, this is the prophetic servant who perfectly served humanity, so follow him. Luke's going to come and say, this is the only perfect human who is without sin, so emulate him. And then John's going to come in decades later, and he's going to say, and don't forget, John's going to say, this is God in human flesh, so believe and trust in him. So this is the way they all work together, and so when you read all four, you're reading a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same speeches, but you're seeing them present pictures of who Jesus is. He is God, John will say. Matthew will say, he is the king of kings. Mark will say, he is the prophet. And he is fully human, so he can be our high priest, Luke will say. You see? And you get this full orb picture of who Jesus is. This is how they dance and they play together. So we don't need to be worried about differences, we need to be thankful that we have four portraits that help us lock in on who Jesus was. And so we will see each gospel writer choose under the direction of the Holy Spirit to focus on certain features so that he might accomplish through the gospel writers, that God might accomplish through the gospel writers a clear portrait of the one Savior, the one Son who we praise and obey and trust and follow and give our whole life to for God's glory. That's how they play together. So now understanding how the Gospels play together, the second thing we need to understand is John's purpose, more specifically by asking, what is it about his time and place What does he see happening in those communities of faith under his care that guides his writing? So the thing about understanding Scripture is it's a John's fully engaged and God is fully engaged. Scripture, like Jesus, is 100% human and 100% God. 
So God has his motivations, and John too has his motivations. So God just doesn't like override John and like he's not just being used by God. God is working with him. He's partnering. That's the amazing thing about following God. God wants to partner with us. And so what are these things that John is seeing? What is it? Now, remember, he's now been freed from his prison on the island of Patmos. He's now back with a Christian community in Ephesus, uh, which is a, was one of the thriving churches, but they had a lot of issues. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to them to help them understand the ways that they might follow Jesus better. And so he's sitting, he's watching the way the church in Ephesus has grown and changed in his time away. And so he starts to say, I think I need to write my own gospel. And he's going to circulate that probably in his mind, at least to the seven churches that he also addressed in the Revelation, a letter he wrote. But of course, God had bigger plans for his gospel as well. Now, John, in those four decades, has all this data, seeing all these people either failing to see Jesus correctly or only seeing part of the true story or getting lost in the shuffle or failing or, or the true message failing to get passed down. All this stuff happens. He's seeing what rough edges certain people like to shave off of the gospel to make it more palatable. He's also seeing maybe how religious-minded, legalistic type of people tend to portray the gospel how they want to use it for their own power or their self-righteousness or whatever it is. He's seeing all these things, and so he's going to say, I need to tell you the truth. So what exactly do you think I believe? He'll say. And John's not angry when he says that. He's lovingly creating the clarity that now we get to enjoy. John, in love, is setting this record straight. And I want to show you two parts in the text that help us see that this dynamic is happening. One is going to come at the very beginning of John, an example of this, and one is, we're going to look at one from the very end. Now, there's many examples we can go to, and we will as we go through this series. So let's start, actually, with the one at the end of John's gospel. So turn with me to the very last chapter, chapter 21 of John's gospel. So that's on page 965. Now, before I read it, the back, the back story goes like this. John's super old. Why is he living so long? Why did all the other disciples die? People would have been thinking this. If you have any old people in your life, you're thinking this. <laughs> why, why hasn't God graciously brought them home yet? What do they, what's going on, right? So it's a, common, it's a normal question, especially for somebody as famous as John. He was in Jesus' cadre. What's going on? Now, let me, so with that in the background, I'll read this and then I'll explain it to you. So chapter 21, starting in verse 20, says this. This is after Jesus had appeared on the beach and had breakfast with a few of the disciples, one of which was Peter. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper, that's John, he was close to Jesus. He was sitting at, next to Jesus. They were sitting shoulder to shoulder at the Last Supper. So it says this. Lord, Peter asked, who is the one that is going, or sorry, he's, uh, John is recalling that he's the one who answered or asked Jesus the question, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? He asked that at the Last Supper. When Peter saw him, saw John on the beach, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Remember, Jesus had just told Peter three times, I want you to follow me and feed my sheep. What about him? What do you want him to do? Peter's asking. Jesus says this, If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, Peter, follow me. Jesus said, stop worrying about John. I told you to follow me. <laughs> this is such a great illustration. We're always wondering, what has he asked everybody else to do? No. What has God asked you to do? 
That's what Jesus is saying. Stop worrying about John. Me and John have our own relationship. I'm talking to you. Follow me. That's what's going on here. Then look what happened because of that. And Peter's probably the one that was telling this story to everybody. Peter. Always causing trouble. Okay, so, verse 23. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple, who's he talking about? John, that this disciple would not die. Yet, and then John says, yet Jesus did not tell him, did not tell Peter, that he would not die. But instead, all he said was, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You see how funny this is? This rumor had come about and probably was growing in, in, in people who believed it because John was so old, even in, in normal lifespan. This rumor grew that John actually wasn't going to die until Jesus came back. And what's John doing? What exactly do you think I believe? Do you think I believe that I'm not going to die before Jesus comes back? Of course not. Jesus didn't promise that to any of us. Clarity. John's no superhuman. John's just John. John's just one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. What exactly do I believe? I believe I'm going to die, and I'm kind of excited about it. Jesus didn't promise me that I would never die. We need to nip that rumor in the butt. I hope he comes back, but he never told me that. Clarity. So interesting. Now, go to the beginning of John, John chapter 1. It says this. This is how John starts his gospel. Let me just read it to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In, uh, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we don't have time for this, but if you went and read how all the other Gospels start... This is totally different. Why? Why does John start his gospel this way? And we'll talk about this passage next week. I'm so excited about it. This is one of the great passages of Scripture. So get excited. At the beginning of Matthew, you're going to find a genealogy, which is a list of names starting from Jesus, working all the way back to who? To King David. To prove what? that Jesus is the rightful descendant of the line of David, that he's the rightful king of Israel. Amen. That's true. Then if you look at Mark, Mark just like, hey, we don't have time here, so we're just going to jump straight to John the baptizer. (laughs) He just skips all the early stuff because Mark's written to people on a schedule. We studied Mark, by the way, a couple years ago, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon series. Oh, it was so, so beautiful. Okay. Luke, he starts his genealogy, or he starts his gospel very differently. He's the one where you hear about the angel coming to Mary and Joseph and, and whatnot, and you see a genealogy in Luke's introduction proving not that Jesus is the rightful king, but walking him all the way back to Adam to say what? Jesus is truly human, and he's the new Adam The Son of Man, which is Luke's favorite title, to say Jesus is truly, fully human. And like we said before, and he lived a perfect life so that he could die the perfect death for our sin. He is the Son of Man. Okay, so John's not like disagreeing with any of this. He's like, you guys already know that. You've either read Luke or you've heard the stories and you know what Matthew has to say about that. You know all this stuff, and he's like, but here's the thing that you might not know, or you seem to forget. So if you ask John, or if John asks you, what exactly, what exactly, it's important how you ask this question, what exactly do you think I believe? And if you said that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne, he'd say, yes. 
That he is the new Adam, the son of man, promised to come to be the Savior, the Messiah in human form. Yes. And then he'd say, anything else? And, he say, and he probably heard a lot, or maybe he didn't know that, think that people understood this. He'd say, but he's also God. And so he starts his gospel. And what doesn't he start with? A genealogy. Why doesn't he start with a genealogy? God has no beginning. And Jesus is God. He's the son of God. So he's all those things. He's the son of God. The word became flesh. Talk about that next week. He's the son of man. The perfect sacrifice who came in human form. And he's going to be our king. The king of God's people for eternity. So all of the things now come together, and John wants to make sure you know exactly what he believes about this Jesus. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just a great king. He's actually God. Making sense? Okay. Now, as we go on, we've got to keep asking these questions of John's gospel to understand his purpose. And one of the things I want... To just tell you, because you might not, it'd be hard to understand this, is that he uses a very different literary style than the other Gospels. And he uses a style that was common of his day, so it's not like he's creating a new genre, but he chooses a different style than the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You could think of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, especially when you read Luke, as historical reporting. I'm going to go interview eyewitnesses, I'm going to tell you what they said, I'm going to recount, and then Jesus said this. Now, when you come to John's gospel, you're going to see it's much more fluid. You're not sure, is John talking or is Jesus talking? He's just sort of weaving it all in. And he's using a form of literary, uh, a, a, a literary, literary tool that we would call Hellenistic drama. Okay, you don't have time to go study all that. The scholars do. Here's a way to think about it. This isn't a perfect analogy, so I don't want to diminish Scripture in any way. Just hear me. You hear me? Don't clip this soundbite. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. This will help you, though. Have you ever come across in your streaming something that first came out as a documentary and then later was made into a reenacted drama? I have. I have. Two came to mind. The Staircase started as a Netflix documentary about a guy who killed his wife. Did she fall down the stairs? Nobody knows. Very interesting. So interesting that HBO said we should get some of that money off of that story. So they created a reenactment with Colin Firth, very good actor, and they called it The Staircase. <laughs> so here's an example. You have a documentary, which is one type of storytelling, and you have a dramatic, re-dramatized, true story. Maybe some of you have seen uh, the story of the biotech company, the rise and fall of Theranos and CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Just got convicted, by the way. She started, she was a billionaire because she lied. Very interesting how somebody could, you know, trick a bunch of billionaires or millionaires into giving money. Lots and lots of money. And so HBO started this time and made a documentary called The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Very fascinating. And then Hulu said, we want some of that money, so we're going to make a re-dramatization of it in a different storytelling mode using real actors to tell the same story. That's called The Dropouts on Hulu. You see how? So this is not that uncommon. John's doing the same thing. You've heard three sort of documentary-style historic reporting accounts, and I'm going to give you true history, but I'm going to use a literary style that's more drama, and I would call this cosmic drama. And you heard it when he started. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... This is cosmic drama. Do you feel the drama? That's very different than listing like 40 names in a row. So-and-so came from so-and-so came from so Like everyone's like, click. And all you people that don't watch documentaries are like, click. But you'd read John. In the beginning was the word. Yeah, that's what John's doing. He's saying, I need to tell the same story in a different way to appeal maybe to a different audience, to draw out things that weren't drawn out, to bring the emotion of the true historic reporting and the eyewitness of things I've seen, I need to bring it into this cosmic drama, literary style, to draw you into the story of God and what he's doing to save you through Jesus Christ the Son. Praise God that we have this. 
Here's what I'd say. Watch them both. Read them both. We need them all to understand who Jesus was. And this is part of why they call John the evangelist, the storyteller. That's not all he is, but that's one of the things he does. Now, I also just want to say, similar to how a documentary and a drama might differ in the sense like a documentary tries to be a little bit more unbiased, right? Present the facts, let you as the viewer... Uh, and then, of course, the drama is definitely trying to push their interpretation of the story. John's the same way. Compared to these synoptic gospels, John is definitely, I mean, he starts by just giving you the ending. Jesus is God. <laughs> you, read, you read the others, and if you went through with us and Mark, the question is like, who is Jesus? The name of that series was the most important question ever asked. And it is, who do you think Jesus is? So... John just answers Mark's question. He's God. But he pulls you then into the drama of what God does for you through Jesus. So it's more biased. But I would say this. Just like don't believe documentaries. They're not completely unbiased. They've got an agenda. So too Matthew, Mark, and Luke have an agenda. They want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God too. They just do it in a slightly different way. Present it in a slightly different way. But their agenda is the same as John's so that you might come to believe and trust that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, third thing we need to do to understand his purpose is to look at the themes that he highlights. We'll get into all these themes, but his, the things he highlights, even the things he leaves out, they all tell the story of why he's writing. So what's missing? Why does he leave those things out? There's lots of things that's missing. Let me give you an example of this. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think they're true. He just assumes you know them from some other source. Word of mouth, you've read Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so, for instance, there's no account of Jesus calling the 12 disciples. And John's one of them. He's just assuming you know that. And so in, you'll see him reference the 12 without explaining who the 12 are. And you're like, Seahawks fans? No, not Seahawks fans. They hadn't come yet. Those are the 12s, plural. The 12, he just assumes you know. Because he assumes you've heard it somewhere else. So he's not writing his gospel to people who have no knowledge so he just assumes you know, and he's like, I don't need to tell that part of the story. Let's move to something else. You'll also see there's no parables. Does he hate the parables? Is he like, I never understood those at all? No, he <laughs> loves the parables. He's just like, those are covered elsewhere. There's no temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Not because he doesn't believe it's true, but because he says that's not important for what I'm telling and why I'm telling my story. There's no exorcisms. Does he believe that there's no such thing as demons? Of course not. He knows that there is. He was there. He watched it. He says, I don't need to retell those stories. There's no transfiguration. And he was one of the only three people that were there to see it, and he doesn't tell about it. Why would he do that? Well, he says, not important for the way I'm telling my story and what I'm trying to accomplish. There's no commissioning of the disciples at the end, though John is obviously commissioned because he goes to all the world and shares the gospel. And then there's no ascension. Okay, why doesn't he put those things in? We've got to ask the questions and try to see, not that he's disagreeing, but what is he trying to highlight? To build us up. So what are those key themes? I won't be able to go into them in depth. We'll go into them as we go through the series. Uh, he is the only one that talks about Jesus as the word, the logos, like we just read. This idea. It's a very interesting idea. A ton of information on that next week. It's the only one that talks about that. So it must be really important to him to help us understand how Jesus is the logos. He is the word and what that means. He's the only one that talks about Jesus as the lamb of God. We sing that all the time. We talk about that all the time. He's the only one that brings that up. He saw deficiency, and he wanted them to know that Jesus was the Lamb of God. We'll talk about that. He, is, uh, he portrays Jesus unlike the others. Not that they didn't believe it, but he focuses on Jesus as the agent of God's wisdom in the world. There's this real oneness between uh, Jesus and God, the Father, and that Jesus is like wisdom incarnate. And then the biggest that we've already talked about, that Jesus is in fact God. You'll see these seven accounts of these signs proving that he's God. That's how the gospel starts. And then the second half of the gospel is all about the Passion Week and Jesus' death and resurrection. But you'll see these statements, these I am statements. And that's what God called himself in the Old Testament. So Jesus is being portrayed clearly by John as saying, I am God. I am this, I am, I am, I am. And so we'll get into that. So these are, these are the themes that John focuses on more than any of the Gospels, and we have to ask and understand why he's doing that. So finally, to understand his purpose, we take him at his word. 
Here's what he says is his purpose. John 20, 30 to 31. I'll just, it'll be on the board and I'll just read it. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Signs for what? Proving that he is the Messiah, God in the flesh. Many other signs that are not written in this book. But these that I have written, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote his gospel. So that by believing, that is trusting, believing is not just an intellectual exercise, it's a putting your life in Jesus' hands, trusting him because he's the Messiah, because he's God in the flesh, you may have life and true life and life to the full in his name. That's why John wrote this. Never want that to be lost. Take him at his own words. He wants people to find the life that he found in Jesus. Now, very quickly here, I'm going to give you a series of applications. How can I get the most out of this sermon series in John? We should all be asking that. How can I maximize everything that God wants to give me through the reading of John? The first, I'd say this. This is Jesus direct. Expect that this book will change you because you're spending time directly with Jesus. When you read the Gospels, it's so beautiful because you're right there with Jesus. So you should expect, as Ryan said last week, that you will be changed if you engage in this series. I would encourage you, don't miss a week. I come in here, I'm like, you just missed this. You're missing it. Don't miss it. There's nothing more important in your life than coming and meeting with Jesus. We get to do that in a fun, exciting way, and there's donuts. Why would you miss a Sunday morning, especially in the winter? There's nothing to do. Listen, listen every week, this is direct. You need this. Oh, who knows if we'll ever get to John again, ever. Like, take every word captive. This is your life. Like, don't miss a week. I'm just like, this is the best place to be. Why are there donuts left? Eat the donuts, people. Moreover, this is Jesus direct. If you have a friend who needs to consider Jesus or reconsider Jesus, unlike any sermon, like 1 Corinthians might have been tough to invite some friends because they're like, this is gnarly. But this is Jesus direct. You want to know about Jesus? Come, we're studying John. We're going to study him every week. This is a great series to invite your friends to. Listen, we have a whole balcony up there that's like at 50 seats. This balcony should be full because Jesus is the most attractive person in all the world. And I hope if I'm doing my job, if Ryan's doing his job, if Ty does her job, this balcony should be full because you are being so, you're coming to life because you know Jesus direct. Invite a friend. Don't keep it from him. This is a great series. Jesus direct. Okay. Number two. I didn't realize how passionate I get. I apologize. No, I don't. Eat the donuts. Okay. Number two. Many people say that this is the best place to start, John. And I was thinking about that. I was talking about it with Ryan. I was like, yes and no. Yes and no in this way. Yes, I think I do recommend that people start with John, only because, honestly, I don't believe they'll read another book of the Bible. <laughs> like, I have really low expectations. Because I think if I were telling people what to do, I'd say, make sure you read two books of the Bible. One synoptic and John. So read Luke and read John. And I'd probably start with Luke. Like if I were telling you to learn the story of Theranos and, and its rise and fall, I'd say, watch the documentary first, then watch the, the, the dramatized version. That's probably what I'd say. So I'd say, Luke. So here's the challenge. As we're going through Luke, get your head into the synoptics as well. On your own time, read through Luke. On your own time, read through Matthew. They're not that long. We'll be here for a while so that you can see how they play and dance together and give you a fuller picture of Jesus, okay? So that, that's your work. You do that. Read Luke. Read Matthew. Read Mark. As we're going through John, it'll bring Jesus to life in a beautiful way, okay? Number three, I want you to try asking this question that's our subtitle. Ask a friend. Ask a family. Just and tone matters. It's all about tone. Like, what exactly do you think I believe? That's different than then jumping in and telling them what you do believe. And what you'll find is that 
Maybe you think you've communicated, or maybe they, you think people know what you believe, but probably there's a big gap. John knew that. 50 year, 40 years after Jesus lived, there was a huge gap between what John actually believed and had taught and what people actually thought he believed. So if there's a gap for John, there's probably going to be a gap for you. And there's nothing wrong with asking that simple question. Again, tone matters. This is not an antagonistic question, but a clarifying question. Like, I want to know, like, have I misrepresented Jesus? Have you misunderstood? Maybe some people you know have forgotten. Maybe you've forgotten. It's okay to just ask, what, what exactly do you think I believe about this Jesus? Now, this question works for the gospel of it all, but I'd say it also works for specifics or secondary issues in the faith. So you might practice or try using this question for other things. Like somebody may ask you your political views in regard to your faith. So like how does being a Christian inform how you vote or how you think about politics? Rather than wasting your time trying to guess what they think or guessing what they're really asking, just ask them, well... What exactly do you think I believe about how my faith informs my politics? That will tell you a lot. And then you work from there. Oh, no, that's actually not true. I actually don't think any economic system is going to save us. I tend to think in a fallen world, this economic system tends to help the most number of people. My faith actually has nothing to do with it. Huh? But you wouldn't know that that's what they think unless they tell you. It could be something else. It's a great question. What exactly do you think I believe about that? I'm just curious. I want to know so, I can, so we can have a conversation. It could be something even more sensitive. Someone might ask you or assume that they know what your position is on LBGTQ plus issues. Rather than trying to defend the caricature that they, you think they're believing about you, why not just start the conversation say, that's a great question. I love talking about this. What, what exactly do you think I believe about it? Just so that we can work from there. Man, I wish I'd learned to ask this question sooner. But you guys can. Someone may ask you or imply something that you believe about God's judgment or how to get into heaven like it's some Airbnb category right next to, <laughs> you know, have you seen these commercials? Heaven's like one of them. How do I get in? Instead of starting to clarify your answer, maybe going off topic, simply ask them, well, what, what, what exactly do you think I believe about that? And it can just be a great place to start. Again, tone is everything. This is not an anti- antagonistic question. We're not trying to trap them. We just want to know so that we actually can start the conversation in a place that's helpful. That's what John's trying to do to fill in the gaps, to clarify. Try it. See what happens. Tell me what happens. Can you please tell me stories if you ask this question and see what kind of fruit comes out of it? And then finally, if you're hearing me say all this and you are the person that feels like the true message, the truth about Jesus has been distorted or maybe you've misunderstood or you've forgotten or you never actually knew or maybe you're thinking of changing your mind, and you find yourself here, you've said, or you're saying right now in this moment, I think it might be time for me to reconsider, you're in the perfect place. This is a perfect place for you. John is the perfect book for you. It is not an accident that you're here. God has drawn you here. He wants to answer some of your questions. He wants to clarify some things that you may never have known or misunderstood, or forgotten. You're in the perfect place, and you're not alone. Everyone in this room right now has something to reconsider. Something that has been distorted or forgotten. Something that they've misunderstood. Something that John, in God's grace, will illuminate for you. Because light has come into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. Everyone in this room is here for a reason. If you feel like John's writing to you, you're correct. You are correct. John, the great biographer of Jesus, will tell us very clearly 
in case we didn't know, he'll say, God has chosen you. He'll say, God draws you to himself through his son Jesus and by his spirit. And he will say, God will preserve you to the end. So for all of us, I pray that this series, this series in the Gospel of John will either illuminate that God has chosen you or illuminate that it's God who is drawing you closer to his son Jesus or it will illuminate that you can have great assurance that God will help you to persevere to the end. Thank God for John. Let's pray.